0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Hey, it's Sean Elling. As we approach the end of 2022, I wanted to reshare one of my favorite episodes we did this year. It was a conversation for a series we did called The Philosophers, about great thinkers and their relevance today. We're definitely going to be producing more episodes like this in 2023, so stay tuned and subscribed. But for now, here's our conversation with the one and only Dr. Cornell West. America doesn't have an especially deep tradition of philosophy. It's not that we haven't produced any good philosophers. Of course we have. But in general, America isn't seen as a beacon of philosophical thought. Why is that? Is it because we have an anti-intellectual culture? Or maybe we're too devoted to practical pursuits? Or perhaps we're just a product of modern thinkers who desperately wanted to break away from the past and start something new. But if there ever was a truly American philosophy, what would it look like? For this episode of The Philosophers, we're going to explore this with one of our great public
2: philosophers, Cornel West. Well, I come from a people who've been terrorized, traumatized, and stigmatized for 400 years, and we've had to come to terms with catastrophe on a variety of different levels, psychic, social, in the face of catastrophe, compassion, courage, vision, not hatred, not revenge. If black people had responded to terrorism in the way that some of our contemporary people do, there would be no America. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, in the face of the catastrophe of slavery, what did they say? We don't want to enslave others, we want freedom for everybody. That's my tradition.
1: Cornell West has written a ton of books And he's taught for over 40 years at schools like Princeton, Harvard, and now at the Union Theological Seminary. But that's not what makes him so singular. For West, philosophy really is in dialogue with poetry, music, and literature. And it's not some cloistered intellectual exercise. He calls himself a blues man of the life of the
2: mind. What does decency do in the face of insult? Now that the nation unequivocally, undeniably has the blues, it may be the case that we either learn something from a blues people or you lose your democracy and end up with a neo-fascist regime. And that's the blues.
1: And in his outspoken support of political candidates like Nina Turner and Bernie Sanders, he's also been a bit of a gadfly.
2: That's why we can say that some of our brothers and sisters were part of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party with their milk milquetoast neoliberalism, we say we want to focus on the least of these, the poor, the working class, everyday people.
1: This public-facing approach is often identified with a school of thought called pragmatism. And if there is a truly American philosophical tradition, this is it. And to explain what it is, we need to know a little bit about its history. There's a movement that emerged in the late 17th century. You know it as the Enlightenment. And we can think of that whole project as an attempt to introduce certainty into philosophy. People like Rene Descartes in France and Immanuel Kant in Germany were obsessed with certainty. They continually asked, how can we know what's true? How can we be sure that our thoughts are on solid ground? Two Americans, William James and Charles Sanders Peirce, both writing in the late 1800s, each gave similar answers to that very question. We can't. There is no way to know definitively whether our ideas about the world are really true. All we have is conversation and experience. Because that's what pragmatism is all about. It's a view of the world that is centered around practice. The things we know are inseparable from the things we do. But then there's John Dewey. And it wasn't until he came around in the early 20th century that pragmatism really found its footing.
2: It is by creation of the intangibles of science and philosophy, that countries and communities have won immortality for themselves after material wealth had crumbled into dust.
1: For Dewey, democracy was the space in which we reached our full potential as human beings. We may never get absolute truth, but that's not the point of democracy. Through democratic engagement, we come together to build a world that's fair and just. And as Dewey says, Truth is having things in common.
2: But our country will depend upon the active response of the common people.
1: Cornell West has a lot to say about all this. He sees pragmatism as a, quote, continuous cultural commentary that attempts to explain America to itself. We'll talk about the story of American pragmatism, how his views are shaped by both his devotion to the blues and by his Christian faith, and how pragmatism can revitalize our approach to democracy today. Brother Cornell West, welcome to the show.
2: My dear brother, I salute you. You all are helping keep alive the life of the mind in some very bleak times.
1: There are a thousand different ways into the the world of pragmatists. So I think I'll just start by asking you why you identified so early in your career as a pragmatist. What was it about this tradition that pulled you in? What was it that spoke to you as a human being and a thinker?
2: I appreciate the question. I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, you see, my brother, as a blues man, the life and the mind, I'm looking for philosophers who were wrestling with forms of catastrophe, lyrically expressed, essayistically expressed, that have to do with how do we learn how to live in the midst of overwhelming suffering. And in the modern world, philosophy tended to go to school with science and the new physics, beginning with Descartes and company. So modern philosophy in the age of Europe is one that is really trying to imitate the clarity, the precision, the tremendous scope of prediction an explanation of the natural sciences, specifically physics. Whereas as a blues man, I have nothing against it. I think philosophy should go to school with a lot of things. Go to school with a lot of different forms of human quests for knowing. But there's always history. There's always narrative. There's always poetry. There's always music. And because a blues man is fundamentally concerned with wrestling with catastrophe, human catastrophe, I'm going to be much more tied to humanistic studies. So you start with Plato saying, okay, how will philosophy, how will the love of wisdom help one wrestle with forms of catastrophe? And the pragmatists come along, and say, well, there's the primacy of practice. All judgments in the inner, practical judgments having to do with how we transact, interact, cope with, come to terms, deal with problems. Now, they're not getting to catastrophes yet, you see. Oh, oh, we'll get to that. We'll get yeah, to exactly. that. exactly. You see, that I'm talking about catastrophe. They're talking about problems. Well, you can't reduce the catastrophic to the problematic for
1: me. And I'm going to ask you about that. Before we do, though, I do, look, you know this every philosophy is a product of its time. And American pragmatism you know, emerges in the 1870s, and it's a very interesting moment. We're trying to figure out how to make this whole pluralistic liberal democracy thing work. And then at the same time, the scientific and the philosophical worlds are still being rocked by the implications of Darwinism, you know, how does the convergence of all that give rise to pragmatism at that time in history?
2: Well, I mean, one is that you've got to begin with Emerson. Mm. And Emerson is the best that we could do in the American empire to aspire to Montaigne. He is the American Montaigne.
1: Yeah, and for those who don't know, Michel de Montaigne is the 16th century French writer who's sort of credited with inventing the personal essay.
2: And as you know, Montaigne is writing in the midst of what? Massive wars against religion. The wars between the Huguenot and the Catholics. And Emerson is providing the real soil for pragmatism. Because Emerson is talking about, yes, the primacy of the practical, the primacy of practices. But he's also talking about the historical process itself as a moral process. And he sees philosophy, like Montaigne, as a form of soul craft, as a form of self-making and self-creating deep suspicions of any authority. Hmm. It's science, poetry, biblical, religious, political, creating a space for self-fashioning. Now, what does that look like? In the context of an ex-British colony with deep intellectual inferiority complexes vis a vis Europe, we talk about the United States, that new nation, that settler colonial experiment on somebody else's land, yes, enslaving others, yes, based on white working men's labor in the north and also of course marginalizing women in private households but unleashing this unbelievable energy unbelievable zeal and gust to create a new world so that Dewey would say pragmatism is the first philosophy in the west to give metaphysical status to futurity it's about consequences and effects it's not about origins and bases and foundations mm. And so it's that green light that Gatsby talks about at the end of F. Scott Fitzgerald's great novel. Right, Gatsby believed in the green light tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow we're going to, tomorrow, because there's no constraints, there's no limits, there's no impediments. Profoundly American, this whole culture that valorizes possibility and futurity. And there's some positive things about it this deep blindness is thinking about it. So pragmatism emerges then right at a moment in which this, Ex-British colony is coming to terms with itself as a distinct social form, a distinct national experiment, and of course, a distinct empire, because it's going to go from 13 colonies to 48 rather quickly. And there's going to be 8 million outside of the continent in Guam and Philippines and Puerto Rico under U.S. imperial aegis. And so we start with the best, the pragmatism. There's Emerson sitting there. And the greatest philosophic genius of pragmatism, Charles Sanders Peirce. And Peirce is talking about consequences, the great essay that you know, the fixation of belief and so forth. The critique of Cartesian preoccupation with clear and distinct ideas that must flow from indubitable foundation. The quest for certainty, Dewey talks about in the Gifford Lectures of 1929. Now, Peirce is obsessed with Kant. Kant is the great figure of the German Enlightenment, no doubt about that. But Somebody like William James, he comes out of British empiricism. He's coming out of Locke and Hume. That's why he ends up talking about radical empiricism at the end of his life and dedicates his essays on pragmatism to who? John Stuart Mill. Ooh.
1: Yeah. And just to give a little bit of background here, John Locke's a British philosopher, worked in the 17th century. Yeah, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher who worked in the 18th century. Both of them are described broadly as empiricists. Which is to say, they held the view that our thoughts derive only from experience. And Mill, in the 19th century, developed the ethical theory of utilitarianism, which is the idea that what's right and wrong is determined by what maximizes benefit for the most people. And so it's very noteworthy that James saw his version of pragmatism as maybe in conversation with that theory of utilitarianism.
2: And James is the most adorable public philosophy we've ever had in American history, but he is not the philosophical genius that Peirce is. So you've got Peirce, the great philosophic genius, coming out of Kant. You've got William James coming out of British empiricism. But the third one is John Dewey. Now, Dewey comes out of Hegel. And Hegel, of course, is part of the highest level of European intellectual breakthrough in the early part of the 19th century. It's Hegel. And so you got these three pillars in the USA. In the USA is a little colony trying to get itself together, market-driven, looking around different parts of Europe to understand how it can best understand itself and come to terms with its own distinctiveness. Purse, James, Dewey. yeah, And they will constitute the first golden age of American philosophy. And they remain the creators of the greatest indigenous philosophical tradition in the United States in the European context that we like do in the age of Europe, date of Europe, 1492 to
1: 1940,
2: mm-hmm. 45. And there's going to be a number of disciples and followers, of course, of which my old dear teacher, my dear brother Richard Rorty, is one of the notable ones, but not the only, only ones. So that's the beginning of a mapping of american pragmatism that's the beginning of an answer to your question my brother
1: yeah and pragmatism is a child of america in some ways it could only ever have emerged from america and and something you wrote that i wanted to ask you about i think you may have just answered it but Mm -hmm. in case you didn't i'll ask now i mean you said that pragmatism was at least partially an attempt to explain america to itself that's right I wonder if that has to do with that lack of history and that inferiority complex you're talking about with Europe. Maybe it's precisely because of our lack of history. Maybe it's precisely because of the lack of fidelity to traditions and ways of thinking and doing that we were able to sort of wipe the slate clean and start anew.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the positive features of American pragmatism, just like the positive features of the American project was a highly Socratic suspicion of authorities in the past. Uh, The weakness is to think that you're not going to be somehow connected to tradition because traditions are inescapable. Traditions are unavoidable. The question is, which tradition? If you wipe a slate, you have a tradition of the new. And the tradition of the new is always tied to something antecedent to it. Every novel breakthrough is not wholly novel. Because it's always based on something prior, yeah. But that energy—that's what I want to stress. You see, the energy, and for pragmatism, it's about sustaining this energy, this creativity. Because the world is incomplete, is unfinished, and unpredictable, and therefore there's always possibility. Now, the worst of that is, as you noted before. The sense that if you wipe it clean, then you have no past. You're starting with innocence. You can't learn from the past. And the only authority is in yourself. And that's some of the, I think, bastardized readings of Emerson. Where people talk about self-reliance. What is self-reliance for Emerson? Well, it has to do with nonconformity. Nonconforming over against what? The dogma's in place. Domination in place. John Dewey's great essay, Emerson as the philosopher of democracy. The suspicion of traditions of the past means you have to then create new dynamic traditions with mechanisms of accountability and responsibility and answerability as in Socratic dialogue, the giving of reasons and argument, what the Greeks call pytho, persuasion, the centrality of persuasion. And that's pragmatism at its best. It's America at its best. It's just that as we noted before, there's going to be a whole lot from the past that constitutes the foundation of this talk about the new. You're going to reconstruct a whole new system of slavery. It's unprecedented in the modern world. One thing I love, one of the many
1: things I love about pragmatism is this desire to circumnavigate all of these navel-gazing debates in the history of philosophy about the metaphysics of truth and just focus on what works in everyday life, what works for the ordinary human being. The more removed philosophy is from the everyday world, the less relevant it is. And I feel like the pragmatists really understood this. Is that why they focus so much on immediate experiences? Is that why they wanted to reject this idea that we need some absolute metaphysical foundation for knowledge
2: absolutely there is a democratizing of voices raised a democratizing of critical intelligence a democratizing of philosophy a love of wisdom and it's found as emerson says over and over again in the quotidian in the everyday among those slides don't call everyday people those James Cleveland called ordinary people, that is the democratizing impulse of pragmatism that I think you get at. Now, you can imagine, you know, when you say what works, but that in some ways obscures more than it actually illuminates, because the question becomes, how do you determine what we understand working to be? Because this is not going to be utilitarian and consequentialist. No, pragmatism has a very strong moral dimension. That's not reducible just to any consequences at all.
1: Right. And that's an important distinction. In saying that pragmatism is concerned with what works, we're not saying that pragmatism is some kind of moral consequentialism where we look only to the outcomes of an act to determine whether that act is right or wrong.
2: We can go back to Plato in this regard. Did you remember Plato's Republic, founding text of Western philosophy? the battle's going to be between Prasimachus and Socrates, right? Prasimachus mm-hmm. represents power, might makes right. Yep. Younger generation looked to Socrates and says, is this true? Is it true that history is nothing but a slaughterhouse, as Hegel said? Is it true that it's just about might and power? It's just about domination? And Socrates says, no, no, justice is this. Justice has to do with intellectual integrity. It has to do with philosophical inquiry. It has to do with some moral and even spiritual dimensions that are not reducible through Thrasymachus' own attempt to reduce it down to just might and power. Mm. And that is the raw stuff for democracy, right? Because democracy is the claim that of course there's always operations of power, economic, political, military, and so forth, but there's got to be moral and spiritual dimensions rooted in the consent of everyday people. Self-government.
0: Ordinary people. That's what he wants.
1: We'll be back with more of my conversation with the great Cornel West after a quick break. So stay with us.
0: Ordinary people. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B U R R O W dot com slash box for 15% off. burrow.com slash box. I know you're a Christian, and I don't really consider myself a Christian, but I have read a lot of Brother Dostoevsky, the great Christian existentialist.
2: Good move. Nobody deeper in the West. Yeah, but I've never heard
1: his name mentioned among the pragmatists. And I don't know, man, I kind of feel like he is. Let me just throw this at you and you can tell me if it's like Looney Tunes or not. Reading Dostoevsky changed the way I thought about religion and truth. Yes, yes. And there's something deeply pragmatist, I think, about the way he thinks about God, where it's not an epistemological truth, it's an experiential truth. God is a motive force. The belief in God, the mutual affirmation with other people of God creates a living truth. It makes possible a form of life. And in a real way, that makes it as true as. The table that my microphone is sitting on right now, is that a pragmatist vision of truth or am I stretching?
2: No, that's a wonderful question, man. It really is. And I mean, there is a sense of the tragic in William James, not just a variety of religious experience. The 1895 lecture he gave in Holy Chapel is life worth living. Remember what the answer is maybe, maybe. So it's not as if he's unacquainted with the night side of the human condition in the way of Dostoevsky, wrestling with epilepsy, gambling, addictions, and so forth, wrestling with the night side of the human conditions. And we want to talk about him that almost executed in the prison up until the last minute. So Dostoevsky, I think, is always a crucial brook of fire through which we must pass and have to wrestle with. Now, when it comes to truth, we've got to clash here, though, brother, because, you see, if you're looking for a conception of truth that is in conversation with the physicists, you need a theory and you end up either with a correspondence theory or a coherence theory. But if you're talking about existential conceptions of truth, lived experience, what it means to generate structures of meaning and structures of feeling so that human beings can live the truth, truth is something that is existentially appropriated. It's not a correspondence between sentences and objects, uh, it doesn't look to The sciences for the models of how you talk about truth. And again, we're not putting the physicists down. They're just much more concerned about a certain kind of homogenizing and mathematizing of our quest for knowledge that allow us to explain things with unbelievable scope and depth of natural objects or human beings who were both objects as well as subjects in the world. Whereas Dostoevsky is so obsessed with the existential issues. He's like Kierkegaard. He's like Kafka. He's like Chekhov. He's like all of the great artists. How do I learn how to live in order to be able to make it through these crises? Must I learn how to die? How do I kill something inside of myself so that the best of myself can emerge in order to be fortified, to live this life from womb to tomb? That's an existential orientation very, very different from any kind of uh, epistemic or scientific orientation. I think we need a variety. I I tend to be pluralist, Mm. I believe, in alternative descriptions. The, The Christian tradition has so many different voices and streams and strands, but to be part of a Christian tradition is simply to say that you're looking at the world through the lens of a cross that signifies a conception of unconditional love and unarmed truth enacted by a Palestinian Jew that tries to follow a way of love. Yeah. He's there because he's deeply loving these people who are unloved. And he's not hating the rich. He's hating greed. He's hating hatred. And you can imagine the relevance of that in our day with the decline of the American empire, with the organized greed. Yeah. And the institutionalized hatred that neo-fascists are mobilizing these days.
1: You mentioned Richard Rorty earlier, a great American pragmatist who passed away back in 2007, who was a teacher of yours and a friend of yours. He's my dear brother. He called pragmatism a philosophy of solidarity. And I want to ask you about that. Rorty thought of pragmatism, among other things, as a check, actually, against nihilism. We don't have to discard our beliefs about the world. We don't have to discard our moral and political values just because we realize that we made them, that we didn't discover them. And a lot of people draw the opposite conclusion (laughs) in in that case. You know, why did Rorty think it was not only correct, but good that we were making everything up (laughs) as we go? (laughs)
2: But that's part of that self fashion and self creation that goes back to Emerson. Yeah, that shot that, through that, of pragmatism and, and Rorty. But keep in mind, you know, when William James said pragmatism is a house with many rooms, and there's a in room, and that in room is that of a Cold War liberal who's concerned about getting beyond the subjectivism and the solipsism of Descartes, and therefore to move toward the inner subjectives, to move toward community, and community for him had to do with solidarity. So we get with a we, not an I. I think, therefore, I am. No, no, it's a, we, we are here. That's how you begin.
1: I always felt like Rorty wanted to toss out the question of truth and falsehood altogether because he thought it was leading us in the wrong direction. Or do you agree?
2: No, you're right. You're right. I mean, he has what he calls a deflationary conception of truth. What does that mean? It means that he sees truth in a way as leading us toward abstract theories again. And he wants to keep things concrete in the various practices that we have in terms of how we come up with grounding.
1: And what's the problem with too much abstraction? Why is it so important for Ordi and for you, for other pragmatists, to stay grounded in the concrete? What goes wrong when we stop doing that?
2: Well, I mean, again, you see, because I tend to be pluralistic and like to learn from all the different rooms in the house, just like I, I learn from different schools of thought far beyond pragmatism. I think there is a role for abstraction. I really do. It depends on what questions you're raising and what kind of catastrophes you're wrestling with, what kind of problems you're dealing with. But in the philosophical tradition that Rorty is concerned about, which is the critiques of Descartes, the critiques of the quest for certainty and the quest for grounds and foundations, the quest for abstraction is a move away from context, away from history, Away from dynamic practices. And I agree with that. See, that's where the pragmatist insight is very important.
1: Is it fair to say that a core mission of the pragmatist is to get us to let go of this illusion for certainty? That that leads nowhere. And that, that quest is not only destined to fail, but it'll actually lead us to delude ourselves about what's real and what is it. And that is its own bundle of problems.
2: But you can imagine, though, brother, it's very important to draw a distinction, though, between a relativism that says anything goes Mm. and a contextualism that is still suspicious of the quest for certainty, but understands there are still ways of adjudicating between better and worse interpretations of the world, better or worse descriptions of the world. And Rorty actually is usually accused of being a anything-goes relativist. When at his best, he's really a subtle contextualist because he does take history seriously. But one of the reasons why he calls for solidarity, one reason why he defends democracy, one reason why he has a critique of fascism is because he still has his values and virtues that he prefers in place.
1: Yeah, I feel pragmatism to me seems like the best of postmodern insights, but deprived of the impulse which you find in some postmodern thinkers, the impulse towards resignation in the face of those insights, the temptation to conclude that nothing is true and that everything is indeed permitted or that it's all relative, Mm -hmm. that seems to me a catastrophic error, but one the pragmatists do not make, and that seems really important.
2: And that kind of skepticism has its role, but without the pragmatic background, you create a lot of confusion, man, with post-structuralism and post-modernism and all these other modernisms that became popular among the professional managerial class in the universities in the 1980s and 90s that also tended to move us away from serious historical investigations about what it is to live in American empire, the end of the European empires, what it means to come to terms with quests for not certainty but quests for truth, beauty, goodness that are connected to the wretched of the earth as decolonization sets in, the decentering of Europe sets in, the depatriarchalizing that takes place with the women's voices, all of those critiques that emerge between 1945 and our own day, which is after the end of the age of Europe and the beginning of the age of the American empire. So all of that historical context drops off. And all you get is deconstruction, deconstruction, deconstruction. Well, that's just a certain kind of skepticism. Fine. Where does it lead to? What does it generate? What does it create? What kind of energy does it produce? That's the pragmatic questions. Well, let me ask
1: you this. If pragmatism isn't relativism, as you know, that was one of the many criticisms Lobbed that pragmatist that it reduced truth to expedience. That's right. So, if it's not relativistic, how does it adjudicate claims of truth and falsehood? How does it decide what is good and what is not? What is worth doing? What is not? What is the standard by which we judge something to be true or false or good
2: or bad? It has to do with context. It has to do with context, right? That is to say that. We look at these tables or these laptops and the physicists tell us it's really protons and neutrons and doesn't look that way. Then we listen to them and they give their arguments as to why they think these particular posits are the best things to get us to understand how these objects in the world operate. And so the arguments are relative to the context and they're changing. They're changing because science is dynamic. But the same would be true in terms of the arts. Now, what makes Beethoven's Ninth Symphony existentially true is not just to talk about brotherhood, the sisterhood of Schiller's Ode to Joy, but he's got some notes going on. He's got some harmonies and resonances and dissonances that are speaking in terms of what it means to be human, very similar to certain kind of religious orientations of truth. Because there are, I think there is truth in beethoven there's truth in real case there's truth in john coltrane there's truth in stephen sondheim there's truth in aretha franklin but it's a different kind of truth so you can see context in each context we know if you were to pick up your horn and start blowing and somebody here coltrane my hunch is it's the truth that he could play better than you now i don't want to downplay your potential
1: but <laughs> the no argument
2: exactly there's forms of excellences that people can see right? But it's relative to context. Now, it might be that somebody really likes you more than Coltrane because they just like the way you're working on your scales. That's fine. People have a right to their opinions, but context still carries with it its own standards of excellence.
1: Yeah, I guess there's a lot of people who feel like that's not enough that there's got to be some transcendent standard otherwise we're never going to agree about anything and how the hell are we all supposed to get along if everybody's got their own vision of the good and the true and the just right like there's got to be some ultimate measure and if we don't have it then we're at sea now i happen to believe that that ultimate standard does not exist right even if we wanted to even if it would be better if it did But I don't know, to those sorts of uh, reservations, you
2: say what? I say that we human beings, we are wretched, we're fallen, we're finite, we're fallible. So we have to learn how to cope with penultimate forms of standards of excellence and so forth. And those are still as real as a heart attack. As I mentioned before, Shakespeare versus a scribbler. There is a difference. You give an account (laughs) of what it is to write. And once you are involved in that activity, then you see the difference. Basketball, LeBron is better than you and I. There's built-in forms of excellence in each relative context that people, if they were able to understand what the game's about, understand what writing is, understand what playing a horn is, then they would have to acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean there's a transcendent thing. Oh no, we don't have to appeal to transcendence for for Shakespeare or Tony Morrison or LeBron or Coltrane or Mary Lou Williams and so forth, not at all. Part of what you're getting at here, mm-hmm.
1: I don't think you're saying that truth is mere consensus, but right. you are saying that there's something fundamentally democratic about how we get along in the world and what we take to be excellent or, or or bad or whatever. And this, I think this leads back to John Dewey. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, John Dewey was very famously engaged in a long debate with Walter Lippmann, a brilliant media theorist and writer, but no friend of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> and Lippmann didn't believe that ordinary citizens were capable of understanding the world, or at least he didn't believe they were capable of understanding the world given their circumstances. That's true. He thought they had to be managed, therefore, by a technocratic elite, by experts, in other words. And Dewey flatly rejected that for moral and for pragmatic reasons. Why is that?
2: That's true. Well, keep in mind now that Walter Lippmann was a student of William James at Harvard. That's wild. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. The early Walter Lippmann was a democratic socialist, very much like Dewey. Yeah. World War I, he loses his faith in the demos. I mean, he almost agrees with, with Plato. I mean, Plato believed every democracy would be shattered by unruly passion and pervasive ignorance mm-hmm. because the demos do not have the capacity to govern themselves and it would always lead toward a tyrant, and hence the need for the philosopher kings. So the early Lippmann had this faith in democracy, Dewey, loses it, and then the phantom. Public. Adds the critique of the demos. We must have experts. Yeah. Almost echoes of Philosopher King's in Plato's Republic. We must have those folk who really know what they're doing and know something about the world because the demos will always be ignorant, gullible. And Dewey comes along and the public and its problems, the text that you're alluding to, and says, Well, Walter, I understand your pilgrimage and your journey. I understand why you've lost faith in the demos. And it is a challenge. It's not like the demos. The demos can go fascist to me. They're writing in the 20s, right? The, Mussolini's on the way. The gangster Hitler is emerging as a result of the wounded German empire. But Dewey holds on to democratic faith. He holds on to it. And you get this powerful dialogue between the technocratic Lippmann and the democratic Dewey.
1: I love this Dewey quote. He says, We lie, as Emerson said, in the lap of immense intelligence, but that intelligence is dormant and its communications are broken, inarticulate, and faint until it possesses the local community as its medium. Damn, I love that.
2: Beautiful. It's very Emerson.
1: Yeah. For Dewey and James, you know, democracy is almost the most humane of all religions in the sense that it has the most faith. In the average human being, and someone like Lippman and a lot of other people don't have that faith, or they had it and they lost it. But Dewey never let it go.
2: That's very, very true. That's very, very true. It's a funny thing, though, because even somebody like Walter Lippman, you, you juxtapose him to somebody like uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who, like Dewey, he had a tremendous belief in the potential of everyday people, and he argued that those who actually became great usually in their early years, were rooted in or connected to everyday people so that the extraordinary is in the ordinary. Now, Chesterton also had some conservative sensibilities and ended up a Catholic. But this sense of wrestling with the potential inside of each and every one of us, but the potential is not just in the lap of critical intelligence, but it's also in the lap of possible hatred. But look, you even said that Dewey lacked,
1: to use your words, a tragic sensibility.
2: That's it, brother. That's it.
1: You think he needed to pay closer attention to issues of race and gender. Why is that? Like, what do you think Dewey couldn't see or didn't see that someone like James Baldwin or Ralph Ellison couldn't help but see?
2: Well, it's two things. I mean, one, you got to remember now, Dewey was anti-racist to the core. He's one of the co-founders of the NAACP. He gave presentations to National Baptist Convention, which is the Black Baptist denomination. So he's anti-racist in sensibility. But part of Dewey's problem was that he didn't read and wrestle with Dostoevsky or Kafka or Chekhov or Shakespeare. With Baldwin and Ellison, it's not that they're black, because a lot of black folk are just as rationalistic and optimistic as some of the other people that we don't associate with, with Baldwin and Ellison. But they wrestle with Dostoevsky, they wrestle with the catastrophic, they wrestle with the underside of the human condition, the underground man, invisible man. You go into James Baldwin's house, he's got Dostoevsky and Chekhov there, and he's constantly wrestling with these issues, yes, partly because he's black, but also because he's got a certain intellectual orientation. Because as you know, skin pigmentation doesn't determine too much. You got to have intellectual formation, ethical cultivation, a whole lot of other things that then help you understand why you're being treated so bad or why you're so hated because you're black. Dewey, as a congregationalist Vermonter, he held the Dostoevsky Chalice At arm's length. And we cannot afford that given our moment of ecological catastrophe, possible nuclear catastrophe, economic catastrophe of grotesque wealth inequality, social catastrophe of the loss, more and more of the inability to communicate, psychic catastrophe in terms of escalating depression and suicide, and spiritual catastrophe in terms of indifference and callousness toward people who suffer. Well, when I think about tragedy,
1: I think about limits, the limits of the human condition. That's right. Is it fair to say that Dewey and lacking that tragic sensibility was maybe a little too optimistic about what's actually possible, given the tragic constraints on the human condition? Did he fail to recognize that maybe the kind of democracy he wanted to see in the world, noble as it is, was maybe not possible due to human nature, due to whatever—
2: yeah, that's a good query, though. Man. I mean, Dewey's complicated on this matter. You read his poetry when his wife dies, and it's pretty, pretty dim stuff. So it's not as if he didn't have any sense of the tragic and loss and lament. It's just that he believed that human beings had been so obsessed with their limits yeah. that they had to be released from that obsession and recognize those limits being contingent and provisional rather than eternal and universal. And I do resonate with that, because a lot of times what people think are limits are not limits at all. Well, you know, there's no way we could really provide uh, support for the poor because uh, the market... uh, driven economists tell us that this is the only way we can arrange society? No. No, you just don't have enough imagination, or not have enough empathy. Hey, look, an obsession with limits can lead to resignation awfully quick, right? And rationalization of oppression and rationalization of domination. Cecil so Dewey's right about that. Yeah. It's just that, you know, there are provisional limits that need to be called into question, but then we all die. We all live for a while and we all breathe we all get sick we all have to wrestle with death of our loved ones we all have to wrestle with dread at some point in our lives despair at some point in our lives and those things are not reducible just to social limits they're existential issues yeah dewey was not an existential thinker at all
1: at the end of the day that was dewey's response to litman's cynicism about people about democracy it's like look you either believe in people or you don't you either have faith in the capacity of human beings for judgment and action or you don't and if you don't what the hell are
2: we doing here where do you get that kind of trust where do you get that kind of faith in nature what if nature is just as cold and callous the way leopardo could characterize nature in his profound pessimistic poems and in his essays and notebooks. Read some Leopoldi, read some Schopenhauer.
1: Stay here for the rest of my conversation with Cornel West after one last short break. And Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience.
1: you've called yourself a prophetic pragmatist which i love i love that phrase
2: mm-hmm.
1: i mean what does that mean and how does it pick up where Dewey left off
2: it takes it back to the blues takes it back to checkoff you see one of my preoccupations is looking for philosophical voices and figures that are analogs to Chekhov and the blues in the tradition of philosophers Because Chekhov never lose sight of the potential of people, but he never lose sight of the wretchedness of people either. Wretched and wonders at the same time. Magnificent creatures with great potential to do good. You see the vicious attack on our precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Those are human beings who are doing that. That's the potential for evil that we have that can never be overlooked. But at the same time, you got Russians who are protesting and going to jail for 15 years. That's potential for good in the midst of the Russian empire run by the gangster Putin. And we can apply that in every nation, every empire of the globe, past and present.
1: I mean, look, this is what I love about the pragmatist. From Dewey to, to Rorty to Brother West, <laughs> they understand everything that... Nietzsche and the deconstructionists did, but somehow you emerge on the other side, hopeful and committed to the unfinished and unfinishable project of democracy. And that's where I am. I don't know where else to go, man.
2: <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Brother, I'm, I'm with you wholesale. I'm with you wholesale. All optimism goes, let me be a prisoner of hope. All pessimism holds, I understand the truth of pessimism without the conclusion of pessimism. And the truth of pessimism is human wretchedness is real, individually and collectively, institutionally and personally. But there's always something more. That something more that James wrote so much about, that spills over. What is that something more? Those moments of eruption and interruption of love and justice and joy and, and music and democracy. That can push back dogma, push back domination, push back greed, push back hatred. Not because we're naive, but rather because we are human all the way down.
1: I love it. You know, we just did an episode a few weeks ago on Albert
2: Camus.
1: And I feel like Sisyphus is maybe your guy rolling that rock up that hill. You know, it ain't perfect. It ain't great. But damn it. That's our rock. And, you know, we're going to make it our own. We're going to roll that thing up over and over and over again, because what else is there to do? There's something about that feels very prophetic and very pragmatist.
2: And remember, he said he wants a Sisyphus who who laughs and smiles, which is fascinating, so that the weariness doesn't make you cold and callous. But I still want Jesus on the cross, because there what you have is a self-emptying, a self sacrificing for concrete persons, the greatest empire in the history of the world in the West, the Roman empire thinks they snuffed out, not just him, but his movement, not just his movement, but of the people who they mistreated, the Jews of that day. And yet somehow the blood at the bottom of that cross become love drops. And those love drops lead into struggles for justice. And those struggles for justice lead into international multiracial solidarity across gender and color and class and nation for what? For more love, more democracy, more justice, more laughter, more joy. And see that, you can't get that out of Sisyphus. Oh, the Greek myths (laughs) only take you so far, Brother Camus. You
1: know, look, in keeping with the spirit of tragedy. I consider you an optimist in lots of ways and you know as much as I love Dewey I think even he realized in the end that he never quite offered a, a real political strategy for achieving his ideal of democratic life. And we live in such a polarized time where the possibilities of dialogue across groups seems fleeting to put it kindly. How in the world Given how divided and complex and big our social world now is, how can we move towards the democratic community, the pragmatist, like you and Dewey and James wanted to see in the world?
2: I think what Dewey was able to do, though, was he did take seriously Socratic humility, which is that fallibility that we've been talking about. No one of us possess a monopoly on truth or goodness and beauty. But it was tied to what he called natural piety. And by piety, what he meant was not uncritical deference to dogma or blind obedience to doctrine, but what he meant was the virtuous acknowledgement of the sources of good in our lives. The great Jeff Stout talks about this, one of the great living American philosophers in the pragmatic tradition. You are never in and of yourself the sole source for good. You're always dependent on parents, You don't teach yourself a language, all to talk about self-made in America as if you gave birth to yourself, as if you cultivated your own virtues. No, no, not at all. That's doing it. And that is the raw stuff for democracy. So that's different than practical solutions and strategies and tactics. It's the spirit of democracy. It's the tone of a society that is on the way Toward sustaining a democratic project. That's the great contribution of Dewey. But I would say that I don't think he would call himself an optimist, though, brother. I think he would fall back on hope. Rorty does. Social hope. That's the farthest we can go. And Rorty is the richest self-styled footnote to John Dewey that we have. <laughs> but he is so original and creative in building on the Dewey and project for me the reason why i hold do a little bit at arm's length as much as i'm part of his tradition is that when you inject the blues and checkoff into any serious talk about democracy then you do have the tragic comic and the tragic comic is not just the limits but how are you coming to terms with the limits you see that's lucian that's erasmus that's revelay That's Nathaniel West, that's Thomas Pynchon, that's Ishmael Reed. The comic, and of course, blues is a tragic comic, to the core. Remember the 1937 Robert Johnson? Hellhounds on my trail, I got to keep moving because the blues coming down like hell, H-A-I-L. Life worrying me so much, there's hellhounds on my trail. I got to keep moving, that's the dynamism. That's the sense of emotion. That's the blues. But you carry with you the best of your tradition. So you still have faith in America. Oh, yes. It's not a glib faith, though. It's earned faith. It's like that costly grace that the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about. It's not a cheap grace. It's an earned faith and a very, very earned sense of grace. The gifts. Our parents. We don't deserve it. We just showed up. A gift. Yes. Or the loved ones that we have, you know, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, those are gifts and friends that we have. those are gifts. Yeah. Coltrane's a gift. Stephen Sondheim's a gift. Carol King is a gift. Curtis Mayfield's a gift. Help sustain us.
1: Cornell West is a gift.
2: <laughs> Brother Sean, Brother Sean is a gift. I got the keep move.
1: Seriously, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's been an honor to have you on our show. This has been everything I hoped it would be. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you so very much. And again, I salute you. I grew up in the black church that used to say, if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that you can leave some heaven behind. You all leaving some good heaven behind with these dialogues. You all are making a difference given the bleakness of our days and our times.
1: I can't Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozduska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. The Philosopher's Theme Music was composed by Eric Janikas. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at, the gray at Vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, give it a tweet, or whatever you do. We're off for the next week and a half for the holidays, but we're back with new episodes of The Gray Area on Thursday, January 5th. Thanks so much for listening to our show. We cannot wait to keep bringing you great conversations in 2023. So stay subscribed and thanks again.